0: Good morning church. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. And this is the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen.
1: All right, it's good to see all of you. Uh, the sanctuary is quite full today. Let me ask you this question. Uh, if we held the afternoon service either early or late, how many of you would be interested in, in attending the afternoon service? Raise your hand. I, I see like this, just a few. Kind of hesitant? This is the problem. We're kind of stuck now. We have two servers in the morning and uh, pretty much maxed out here. So what should we do? I need to pray more. I <laughs> need a solution. Uh, well, we have a, a lot going on today, but um, I wanted to introduce a sister I met earlier. Uh, her name is Sue. She's married to Homan or Homan. Uh, I don't think Homan's here today, but Sue's here by herself. Sue, raise your hand for us. Where are you? She's sitting right over there in the middle. Let's give her a warm welcome. Yeah. yeah so uh, we have communion um, prepared for you later in the service, as well as Cornerstone's first ever elder ordination scheduled for 430. So I invite uh, all of you to join that, especially if you're a member of the church. Uh, but because we have so much, uh, so much going on today, I'm going to do my very best to keep this message on the shorter side for everyone's sake. Alright? Do I get an amen or no? <laughs> uh, the big idea I wanted to communicate to you today is that no matter how much trouble we may face in this life as faithful followers of Jesus Christ... God is never surprised because he is always in control and he's fully committed to bringing all of history into conformity to his good and sovereign will. That's the big idea. And there are at least four important points in this passage that support this idea. And so I'm going to share these four points with you. Uh, the first point will be a little bit longer, but I'm going to move rapidly uh, through the second and th- three and four, okay? Um, first point is this. Persecution served as the God-ordained means through which the gospel moved from Judea to this hard-to-reach land called Samaria. Okay, let me flesh that out for us a bit, Okay. One thing that we need to remember to fully appreciate what's going on here is that for a Jewish person, Samaria was like a cursed land. It wouldn't be an exaggeration at all to say that the Jewish people hated, they, they absolutely despised the Samaritans, and it's hard to blame them because the Samaritans were not a noble people. They made all the wrong choices throughout their history. Let me give you a few examples. First, they went against God's clear commands by intermarrying with people of other religions. So idolatry was rampant. They held a very loose view of Scripture. And at one point, they only viewed the first five books of the Bible as Scripture. And so the rest of Scripture they rejected. They ended up publicly defiling the holy temple of God by erecting a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, which was totally unacceptable and unauthorized. When Jerusalem was under siege by Antiochus IV of Syria and the faithful people of God chose to be tortured rather than to surrender, the Samaritans compromised and they chose to dedicate the temple that they established on Mount Gerizim to Zeus, the pagan god, which tells you how much they actually valued their own faith in God. These were a compromised people. And that's why the Jews despised the Samaritans and even viewed them as enemies of true religion. So notice that all of the exciting things of God, all of the the ministry that's been happening to this point in the book of acts was done in jerusalem and in judea only right the church was growing like crazy and god's people were loving each other so well but all of this activity was taking place only in jerusalem but remember what jesus said earlier in acts chapter 1 verse 8 he said my disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, but it doesn't stop there, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, if you don't know this tension that existed between the Jewish people and people of Samaria, then you think that this is an easy thing, but it was not. I mean, was, was anyone going to voluntarily move out of northern, Ver- I mean, Judea and into Samaria? You see, it, it doesn't matter what era we're living in. People are essentially the same, whatever the time period may be, right? It's part of our human nature to desire what is comfortable and safe and secure, For the Jews, Jerusalem was their northern Virginia. It was their home. It was what they considered to be the central hub of their lives. To be exiled from their home meant discipline and judgment from God. Jerusalem was a place where God established his temple. In their minds, it was clearly a place where God's presence was God's blessing was was there for them in that very place. But here's the thing. Jesus enters into the picture and he declares himself to be the fulfillment of God's temple. This is earth-shattering revelation for them. And this meant that God's people were to no longer view Jerusalem or the physical temple of God as a place they were to revolve their lives around. Instead, They were commissioned to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, get out of Judea, into Samaria, reach the nations, was the command given to them. But what Jew, again, in their right mind, given the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, would voluntarily cross over into enemy territory, unless God intervened in some powerful way, which he did. And so here's the reality. God used persecution to scatter the church so that the gospel would move from Judea into Samaria and beyond. This was God's doing. He was sovereign in it. You can think of a shepherd taking his rod and striking the ground and sheep scattering. That's the kind of work God was doing here. Brothers and sisters, this is not to say that we should therefore desire people to be persecuted for their faith. That would be a pretty sick desire to have. I mean, we shouldn't desire harm upon others, especially if they're our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ suffering unjustly. However, we should find great comfort in knowing that God He uses even persecution to fulfill his sovereign purposes and mission. That's what we see here. You see here refugees fleeing Judea, but these refugees are the ones who become the very missionaries that reach Samaria with the gospel. And this is what I mean when I say that God's sovereign hand is at work in the midst of persecution. You see that? See, from our perspective, our natural human response to such harsh persecution would be, no, please, God, not not my life, not my house, not my family, not my property. My very life is being threatened. Things can't get any worse than this. Woe is me. But What man intends for evil, God intends for good. This principle is at work here. Brothers and sisters, when we insist on only gathering and forming these unhealthy clumps of cells, rather than scattering as salt crystals to preserve the testimony of Christ in a dying world, which we're called to do... And I'm not, I'm not against gathering, but there has to be a scattering as well of believers into the world. But when we're only gathering and not scattering, when we become comfortable with only doing life with our closest friends and allies, instead of taking the good news to our enemies, let's not be surprised if God in his sovereignty strikes us with his rod of discipline to scatter us so that the gospel can reach the Samarias of our day. But the gospel does not spread just because people move from one location to another. The gospel is spread only when people are actually committed to spreading the word of God. So, verse 4 is important. It reveals what the priority was for the people of God in this day. It says, Now, those who were scattered went about, and Luke could have mentioned a hundred other things because there was much to do. They had to find a job. They had to find shelter, right? They had to find communities. But what Luke highlights here was their priority. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, the word translated here as preaching, I think it, it could, the better choice of words would have been sharing the good news, because that, that's what the Greek word is. It's euangelizomenoi. It's basically sharing the good news. It's not just preaching. It's just sharing the good news. And so, brothers and sisters, do not think that you all have to become preachers, but you should all Aspire to become sharers of the good news to others wherever God sends you. This means that evangelism is not just to be reserved for a handful of special Christians. There are no doubt, and I've seen this many times, there are people who are especially gifted in evangelism for sure, but any one of us can share about who Jesus is and what he has done for us, right? Anyone can do that. You can be in youth group and you can do that in your own words. God does not tell us that we have to be so skilled with our words and win every argument and debate with unbelievers. Let's not put that burden on us. That's not a requirement. But he does call us to share the good news with others. All you need to really do is to testify in your plain words who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And those whose hearts have been softened by the work of God's spirit will be responsive to even such a simple message. Brothers, sisters, do not measure success based on how many people you lead to Christ or how many people like you on social media. If you serve as a faithful witness, Many people will actually be repelled by your message. That's what you should expect. That's why Jesus suffered and died, because people rejected him. That's why Stephen, in the previous message, was martyred. He was stoned to death, because people rejected his message. If you are faithful to the message, people want to close their ears and either find a different kind of community Or they will try to go after you like they did with Stephen. When I first joined this ministry back in 2009, it was a small group of people, but like is always the case, you'll always have a mix of genuine believers who really have a heart for the Lord. And then you'll have people who are nominal Christians, right? Christians in name only. Right? Those are people who don't really have a heart for the Lord, but they attend church for other reasons, mainly for social reasons most of the time. Okay? Or maybe it's the, it's the lunch that they enjoy. I don't know. It's something. Maybe it's the board game night that the yams, uh, yam group's holding. Maybe they just like hanging out and having fun. And maybe they're so tired of COVID, they just want to mingle with people. They're so tired of being isolated. But they come for other reasons. And it was like that in 2009 as well. And I was simply trying to be faithful to my task in preaching and teaching God's Word. And I never considered myself a great preacher. I don't even consider me a, a, a now a great preacher. But I was just simply being faithful to what I, I considered my primary responsibility as a pastor and shepherd of God's church and while I was doing that by the grace of God the ministry started to grow and people were being added and strangers were coming in to the church wanting to be part of the church and and people who were here there was one sister who ended up leaving and as she was leaving she said pastor what have you done to my church what have you done to my church she didn't feel comfortable anymore Her heart really was not for the Lord. She was here for other reasons. Brothers, sisters, our job as believers is to simply plant the seeds of the gospel wherever the Lord leads us. People will will criticize you. You will repel many people in the process but stick to the task that God has given to you. I know uh we were doing this really well before COVID. Um we were people committed to to reaching others, but then COVID hit and then everyone kind of kind of went back to their corners and we became very hesitant. I think our posture became very tentative. I think all the masking didn't help either. Like you're not sure what the comfort level is. I, even now, I'm not sure if I should shake your hand or if I should do a little fist bump, right? So there's always that, this, this awkward split second, right? But I want to encourage all of us to do our best to move toward people again. Let's move toward one another, okay? If you see someone you don't know, let's resolve to move toward them once again, hello. I don't think we've ever met. Let me just introduce myself. Okay? Sometimes it might just end like that, OK? But I, I tend to want to see how, how open this person wants to be. And so if I have a little more time, my, my, my usual questioning would be like, OK, what, what is your story? Tell us, you know, what, what's your story? Well, first of all, how did you find us? And then the next follow-up question is, what, what's your story? Or right, tell me something about yourself. Did you attend another church before coming here? This usually doesn't happen during the first meeting, but if I am able to spend additional time with them, either in the sanctuary or maybe over lunch or dinner, I will always try to go deeper, okay? You have to learn how to go beyond that, sort of that initial small talk, right? And so if if I ever share a meal with you, Expect me to ask the question, how did you come to know the Lord? Okay. I want to give you the invitation to, to share more about your life story in relation to Jesus, the most important person in the world. All right? And um, that's a good, good way to kind of test how much they want to open your life. And if they don't know the Lord yet, guess what? Oh, may I then share the gospel with you? May, may I then share, share something uh, that I think is very important? That's how you uh, enjoy not just fellowship, but Christian fellowship. And that's how you begin to be an evangelist. Okay, you might not be the most skilled one, but you will be faithful to the task that God has given to you. Amen? Okay, that's, that's the first point I wanted to make. Uh, the second point, third and fourth, will be uh, a little quicker. Number two, persecution intensified because of Stephen's strong stance against the authorities. But I want you to notice here that Stephen is not blamed. He is rather honored by God and also by devout believers. Luke makes this very clear that, that the persecution the church received in this time was largely because Stephen's sermon, the sermon he gave. He, he in a way, uh, aroused anger within the hearts of the authorities that led to the intensification of persecution upon the church. But then right after that, it says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And so I believe this, this point can serve us in two ways. Number one, we ought to be encouraged to know that God does not judge us by the same standards as the world does. Think about that for a moment, okay? I'll mean, i explain. Be encouraged to know that God does not judge us by the same standards as the world does. What I mean by that is this. If people were harmed because we chose to be a faithful witness to Christ, Guess what happens normally? When when, when Christians are faithful, guess what happens? The New York Times and the Washington Post, they would rip us apart, and there would even be so-called Christians who would criticize us for being selfish or even self-righteous for standing up for God's truth. That's what happens often in our day. Christians take a stand, and then the media rips them apart. Some of you may be able to imagine some critics of Stephen in his day, lecturing the rest of the church not to use the kind of inflammatory language Stephen did before getting stoned to death. They would have likely argued, you know, seriously, God, is it really necessary or helpful for for the cause of Christ to to call our leaders, you stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit? That's the language that Stephen chose to use, and he was filled with the Spirit. Is what he said, which angered the authorities. But is it really necessary to use a language, the critics would say? Because of people like you, because of people like Stephen, you fundamentalist Christians. By the way, historically, we're not really part of that camp, but secular folks, just they use that term very loosely, call everyone a fundamentalist Christian just because you believe in the Bible. You fundamentalist Christians, Because of you, the whole city turns against us, can't you see? You're responsible for all the lost lives and broken families, would have been the accusation. So I I have no doubt that the writer Luke here, he made sure to say that it was devout men who honored Stephen. He said devout men, not, not every person. Not all men. You know why? Because there were plenty of non devout men who maligned Stephen, most likely, and who blamed Stephen for the persecution they were suffering. The second way which this point can serve us, I believe, is by it informs us on how we ought to respond to such people who are simply trying to live faithfully before the Lord according to their conscience. You know, we are not to malign God's faithful. We are not to dishonor them, even if the earthly authorities lash out against us as a result of their faithfulness. Those who believe that God is sovereign, even in the midst of persecution, will honor those who are faithful. From what what I'm seeing, there are too many people in our day who love to engage in what some have called sheep bashing, or sheep kicking, or sheep slapping, and it's because they're more concerned about how the Twitter world will think of them rather than how God will think of them. They want to just look good in front of the world, and they're applauded when they they criticize Christians who are simply trying to be faithful. Look, when Christians are in clear violation of God's Word, then of course we have a responsibility to hold them accountable. But brothers and sisters, let's be careful not to engage in sheep bashing in cases where believers are simply trying to be faithful to the Lord, even if you may disagree with their methods at times. I remember one sister she was attending Mason a long time ago, and she would. She came to me once and said, "I just don't. I don't like. I just don't like when I see Christians on campus doing like street evangelism. You know, it's like she, she cringes whenever she sees someone do street evangelism. Right? And I'm like, why? Yeah. They're just trying to preach the gospel, right? Why? Why, why are you repelled so much? Honor." Such people, if you, even if you disagree with their methods, they're simply trying to be faithful to the Lord. Point three: God is able to turn our worst enemy into our closest ally, as we see in the example of Saul. Okay, if you don't know who Saul is, he's basically the same guy who became the apostle Paul. Okay, Saul is simply his Aramaic name, I believe, and Paul is Greek name. Okay, same guy, but he was a vicious vicious man prior to his conversion. But I believe as we as we witness Paul's transformation, um, it really calls us to look at our enemies through the eyes of faith. Just as there would have been many Christians blaming Stephen for the trials they were facing, Right? There would have also been many Christians expressing great anger and hatred towards Saul. And again, who can blame them? I mean, he, he was the, the person mainly responsible for driving Christians out of Judea and causing all this chaos, ripping families apart. But isn't it encouraging to know that God has the power to turn our worst enemies into our greatest allies? This same guy who was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging people off, throwing them into prison, the same guy, just a few years down the road, now is the Apostle Paul, great lover of Christ. You see him speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Were his words just a few years later. So if we view people, even our worst enemies, through the lens of faith, don't you think that we will be encouraged to live with greater hope in what God can do in the midst of our troubles? Because isn't it true that our biggest troubles are created by those we consider our enemies? That's totally true for me. If I think about my life. Right? The most heartache. I'm telling you, it's because of the enemies in my life that seem to drag me down. But to know that my greatest enemy could one day become my closest friend helps me trust in God more, helps me place greater hope in my God, and it allows me even to pray for my enemies, knowing that God is the only one who can bring about genuine transformation in any of us. So I cling to Him. I hope in Him. So do not look upon your enemies with constant anger and hatred. That anger within you it will will destroy you. Don't let anger do that to you. Rather Look to the Lord and hope in Him. Number four. The suffering of one community brings gospel joy to another community. Okay? The suffering of one community brings gospel joy to another community. I want you to think about two things under this last point. Okay? First, first, I want you to think about the people who labored to bring the gospel to you. Who are those people? How many hours do you think your parents prayed for you so that you would come to know the Lord? How about all the people in the church who sacrificed their time and energy for you? Maybe by laboring through all the VBSs you're a part of. Maybe by serving you at the youth retreats or the college retreats or whatever function. Maybe it was a small group ministry that you are a part of, that it really affected you. Maybe it was the Bible study, or maybe it were all the private emails and conversations you had behind the scenes. You know, I also had friends and even strangers that unknowingly did their part to direct me toward Christ and away from loving the world so much. So this day, they probably don't know. I remember there were two sisters I knew in college who would, pretty much every day, at least at least once a week. I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't know because I wasn't there every single day. But at least once a week, I, I would see them standing at the entrance of the campus, singing, in a small group, as part of a small group, singing praises to God, as a witness to the beauty and glory of God in Christ. That was their routine. They would sing hymns and, and, and spiritual songs to him. And they would endure the displeased looks and the mocking sounds of students passing by. This was in Korea, by the way. And I wasn't particularly kind to them either, I remember, but they still did their very best to, to reach out to me and invite me to serve the Lord with them because I was sort of living in-between church and the world. I was confused myself at the time. My heart was pretty far from the Lord, but I tell you, their labor in the Lord was not done in vain. It impacted me. The simple point that I want you to see is that for the gospel to go forth into places and into people whose hearts have have grown hard, one group normally has to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of another group. That has generally been the case all throughout history. right? That's why we said two weeks ago, the blood of the, blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's because unless one is willing to suffer and die for the sake of Christ and reaching people, These cultural and religious barriers are nearly impossible to break. You need people really willing to die and suffer to reach people for Christ. Just as a mother needs to go through tremendous sacrifice and suffering to bring forth physical life and grow it and nurture it over the years, it takes blood, sweat, and tears to bring forth spiritual life in this world. Secondly, I want you to think about the joy of being forgiven from the weight of your sins. As I was meditating upon this passage, I was reminded of the woman who anointed Jesus with oil. She also wet his feet with her tears and wiped him down with her hair. Remember that woman? And the lesson there was, he who has been forgiven much... Loves much. She was a woman who knew the depth of her sin and how much she had been forgiven by her Savior. And and her response was extravagant love for Jesus and the deep joy in knowing that her debt, the debt of her sins, had been completely wiped away. So tears just started flowing. It was great joy being free from that crushing burden that plagued her all her life. And I think something like that is in view here as well. Because as I mentioned earlier, Samaria was a God-forsaken place for a long time. The people of Samaria were a more rebellious and godless people than the people of Judah. Their idolatry was more rampant and their sins were greater. But it says there was joy in the city because ordinary men like Philip were finally willing to go take the gospel message to his enemies. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news and bring joy, not only to their friends, but also to their enemies. But someone had to suffer, you see. Someone had to sacrifice to bring that message, to enter into enemy territory and do the humanly unthinkable to love thy enemy it takes that kind of sacrifice for the gospel to produce joy in other communities so then as we place our trust in the work of God's sovereign hand i ask you brothers sisters can we become a community that is willing to suffer so that gospel joy can be experienced in others. As I've been forced to meditate upon the work of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts, I can't help but to pray that God would make us into a more sacrificial, bold, a more courageous community and I really, I probably shouldn't compare us with other people in Northern Virginia. But when I do, when I do, I think, I think we're moving in the right direction. That's a thought that comes to mind. I think we're moving in the right direction. However, when I compare us to what I see in Scripture, I realize we still have a very long way to go in terms of our spiritual maturity and growth. So may God help us, and may we continue to place our trust and hope in Him as we commit to walking in obedience to His will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, this morning we we wanted to clearly acknowledge that you are a sovereign God, even in the midst of great hardship and persecution. We're thankful and encouraged that the work of the church and, and gospel ministry will not be stopped no matter how difficult life may become for us, for your grace sustains and empowers the faithful to serve as a witness wherever you scatter them. And you are strong and mighty that if you will it, even our worst enemies are made our closest friends. Most importantly, your gospel brings us great joy. A joy that becomes a strength that enables us to endure through any hardship that we may face in this life. So praise be to God. And be glorified, O Lord, both in our comfort and pain. For you are sovereign in all of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.